This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing the 2001 French film, Time Out, and the theme is denial. Helen, kick us off. So this is an oldie but a goodie. I um, watched it a lot when I was a teenager. Um, it really spoke to me. I think there's something about the... Um, I really, I really enjoy films that depict depressed characters. I find, I find it very moving. And there's something where I'll have to think about that. I wasn't going to talk about that today. Um, depressed characters on film. Maybe that's for another week. But yeah, I have been thinking a lot about the theme of denial or the idea of denial over the last few weeks. Specifically about, obviously, the way that the contemporary quote-unquote left has denied what really the left... Um, usually does in terms of its approach to the market system, in, in, in terms of its understanding, and how um, a dynamic of the so-called left has um, been engaged with uh, denialism or mystification um, to um, decorate the market system and deny the antagonism that is at the heart of it and that always will be at the heart of it, which is the appropriation of surplus value by those who, mean, uh, uh, who own the means of production. Um, and then the second form of denial that I wanted to talk about was the, in this era of like rapid proletarianization, and it's been going on for, you know, a good chunk of years and it's just continuing on. And I think that our denial of it has led to a lot of suffering um, and has led to um, certain segments of, the so- of society who are, um, at risk of of this proletarianization, casting their gaze away from it through um, performative cultural politics, which distinguish their cultural values from an already proletarianized segment of society's cultural values. But that their focus on those cultural values has um, led to a continuation on of the very system that has proletarianized many, specifically younger people. And potentially will proletarianize these people in their older age because of the nature of our, um, pr- precisely because, you know, in this sort of dialectic, the denial of the principle, the undergirding um, reality of, of capitalism, this inequality, this appropriation of uh, surplus value by those who earn the means of production, leading to this enormous inequality and the sequestering of resources amongst a sort of new billionaire class. Um and this has been obviously um, allowed to happen due to a denial of um, the fact that new turns in capitalism, new revolutions, new industrial revolutions are the same old shit, different day. And so what we have uh, in reality is something really quite simple, but very tragic, precisely because it's so difficult to cast our gaze to the correct uh, reality that we're dealing with and this propensity for us to deny. And obviously, there's something highly psycho- psychoanalytic about this denial. Because to, and this is, I mean, this is sort of a, a Hegelian, a Freudian Hegelian point, that to recognize the contradiction at the heart of our market system is really to recognize the contradiction at the heart of everything. And to do so is traumatic. Obviously, we have these passages in, in Freud and, uh, and Marx that are very similar. Freud talking about in uh, the introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy, right? Um, you know, the picking the living flower, the opium of the people, the denial of our reality, which covers over, you know, d- d- disguises or, uh, 
or um, distracts our gaze from the chains in which we are burdened so, so that we aren't able to, to confront those chains, take them off and, and pick the living flower, something reasonable, something based in you know, the emancipatory contradiction. And then Freud obviously talks about ordinary unhappiness, which is to do with tarrying with contradiction. You know, we have the idea of democracy in politics, Hegel's um, quote unquote end of history, obviously a contentious idea, but this idea of um, a denial of contradiction, a denial that we come from lack, that we are born of nothing and we are born from a rupture and our whole subjectivity is um, engendered by a second birth, a a break from our mothers to whom we are born too soon. And this engenders speech, this engenders thought, this engenders subjectivity. Our entire universe, I mean, obviously the Big Bang is still potentially just a theory, but this this does point to the fact that we all come from contradiction. And we would rather, um, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think I always have this like really bad analogy, suck on the teat of the ideology of promise. Sorry, that was the first one that came to mind. We always want to soothe ourselves with this ideology of promise that we can get to a utopian future. You know, um, obviously we talk about labour um, generating value. And, uh, you know, traditionally we might think of sort of, you know, people in mines, people in factories generating labour. But there is also a huge amount of labour today and historically done by, well, I'll call it today, and this is a term that many other people have used, the cognitariat. When we do free labour, we are creating value for somebody. And the free labour that the cognitariat, which is the proletarianized, generally educated, uh, younger age group of people wanting jobs, well, there aren't enough, let's say, practical jobs for these people anyway, but aspiring or um, fed the ideology of promise in terms of an, an upper middle class aspiration for sort of some media or cultural job or some, some professional job of which there aren't enough for this whole generation. Um, but this, this promise gets people to um, slave away and generate value for the, you know, if I just commit a certain period of time, if I just do this, if I just develop my talent, if I just do, then this something will happen. But of course, the material reality, which we deny is that because of the structure of capitalism, there are, there is this sort of over, um, you know, there is a, you know, the, the reserve army of the unemployed essentially with this. But we, you know, this is where the, the, the middle class person, the aspirant suffers more in a way, um, subjectively in some ways. Okay. Obviously we have those who are on one side of, um, surplus value who don't have enough money to exist and who suffer in that sense. Um, but there is also a, a sort of not self-imposed because very much this is this is an ideological um, something that we are pushed to by market forces. But there is a subjective suffering of the aspirant who sacrifices in the here and now for the promise of a future that will never come. And I think there is a lot of this today that um, must be denied because the truth of it is too painful that uh, young people have got into so much debt that there really is not enough, there is not enough room in this current order of things precisely because we have denied the true um, structure and impetus of capital with the promise of, you know, oh, the freelance revolution, oh, Silicon Valley, oh, you know, what have, you know, on, online this, that and the other, diversity, blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah. So in this film, this is, this is about a, um, an upper middle class uh, French man who has been fired and who um, 
desperately wants to cast an image of himself as this sort of um, member of the UN NATO NGO Geneva set. Um, and he um, exists, he, he, he lies to his entire family that he has this job and he sort of goes driving off around um, the, the sort of Geneva-France border um, pretending to have this life. And it's just the, I guess the point that I really want to come to is this the pain for a lot of people in accepting that this reality, this ideology of promise even if, even if he were on the one side to get this job, there would be all sorts of frustrations and difficulties and dissatisfactions. And if it was the thing that, you know, the, let's say his lost object, the thing around which his subjectivity revolves, he would be kind of melancholic if he, he got it because there would be no room to desire. So that's, you know, one thing in the first place and would maybe as a way to help one break free from this intense, you know, um, painful, um, desire to 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 you know to have this object to have this career, but on the other hand, you know he's he cannot accept the 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 other thing, which is that he he's been fired, that he doesn't have a job, that he he's sort of failed in the eyes of his upper middle class family, that he's just normal. And I think I spoke um, a few weeks ago about uh, there's a one of these true crime documentaries on on Netflix, but I thought it was quite poignant about again in France about a, a, a man in a similar situation who um, was a very failed businessman but wanted to be part of this sort of old moneyed upper middle class set in, in France. And um, instead of admitting that the fact that he'd sort of made up all these businesses that had failed, he ended up killing every other member of his family and then potentially killing himself or they don't really know what happened to him. So it's so much suffering, this sacrifice, selling off the present Again, for this man not accepting his reality so he couldn't pick the living flower and actually, you know, create a, a, a reasonable life for himself and his family creates a, a huge amount of suffering precisely because he's throwing himself after something that he cannot have. And even if he had it, it wouldn't be that brilliant anyway. But that's a sort of separate issue. But at the same time, you know, we've created a world which hooks us into this form of desire, this toxic form of desire, this neurotic belief in the um that there is an end of desire in fulfillment which there isn't and this captures us this um makes us sacrifice our reality building something better and more reasonable in reality which might have to do with accepting you know that the the rock bottom of the reality of our market system so this is not you know to blame an individual you know this is this is really a societal kind of wider ideological um, force that is to do with um, our collective denial of the reality of capitalism. And obviously what Marx did so well was he spelled out very simply, you know, um, how, how value is generated under capitalism. And I think we could do with um, getting back to those basics in a world where we, especially this, this cognitariat, this, this class of people who it has been sort of brought up on the belief of the possibility of being within this class, of having this kind of life, um, you know, it's actually, it's an impossible fantasy. All right. Nina, you are up. Okay. Um, I first saw this film, Time Out, in, when it came out in 2001. I must have been a master's student at this time. 
Um, so this is, you know, 20 years ago, <laughs> hilariously. Um, and yeah, it, I was just reflecting on the way in which our thinking about work and anti-work ideas and what work is has transformed in the past 20 years. Um, not the least of which has been hastened, I think, in the last two years, um, as the pandemic has, has, has revealed a, a sort of laptop class, um, and its dependence, but mystificatory dependence on a whole, uh, working class, which remain unseen up until the point in which they bring people things. And, you know, JJ Charlesworth has this tweet, which is worth repeating, where he said the pandemic was middle class people sitting at home while working class people bought things to them as a very accurate description of what happened. And I think we also had, um, Alongside that, a kind of glimpse into the kind of reality of, of the cognitariat type life, also at the level of children's schooling, which I think was very shocking to a lot of people, um, a lot of parents who saw the kinds of things that their, their children were being taught and indeed how little they were being taught. Um, and we saw a kind of rise in homeschooling, I think, particularly in America. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of that kind of um, breaking away from um, these sorts of institutional dominant forms. I think the age of the office is over. Like this is a film about a upper middle class bourgeois life that is tied to a particular realm of, um, the, the meeting, the computer, you know, you have uh, these, uh, these sort of, uh, yes, this, this world of NGOs and international relations. And I think the content of the job that he, pretends he has is not irrelevant um, in terms of this kind of helping businesses in Africa. This is the kind of the, the, the sort of idea he stumbles upon where he visits the, the office and then sort of uh, recite, learns to recite aspects of the job that he would have had if he had the job. Of course, he hasn't got the job. He's, he lost his job. He was fired. He confesses in one scene, partly because he became so obsessed with with driving that he just never wanted to get out of his car and actually go to work. Um, and I think this is a very beautiful moment where there is the sense in which the thing that people really want to do is described. It's described by him. He just wants to drive around. This is indeed what he ends up doing um, when he this is his 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 original job. Um, he doesn't tell his family. It's interesting that when he gets slightly um, manipulated by the guy who's transporting illegal goods, what he ends up doing is actually something he enjoys. He ends up driving, and he seems to enjoy the camaraderie, and you know, in a sense, is is enjoying uh, being not just working class but kind of lumpen criminal class um you know for a bit uh, and dealing in cold hard cash none of these bourgeois checks none of this kind of you know promissory notes he borrows money from his father for a fantasy house that doesn't exist in geneva he uh, he he sets up a kind of ponzi scheme that he ropes his friends into and there's a very interesting moment where the the, the his more working class friends find out about the scheme and they too want in and he's very reticent to have them in because he knows that in a way their loss of their small amount of investment would cost them a lot more personally. At the same time, it's very obvious that he, um, you know, manifestly envies what they have. They have, they don't have much. They have a small apartment. They have a daughter. They, they're very loving. They have a laugh. And the father has, enjoys his, his, his spare time by fiddling about on, uh, some, 
some keyboards or something like he he stresses they're not professional it's just for fun uh you know he doesn't want to play a song because he's not ready but he's clearly like enjoying his his desire and there is a sense in which the upper middle class bourgeois keeping up appearances guy is is kind of envious and doesn't want to punish them for his own uh not um, and then, and therefore kind of takes money from the illegal job and gives it back to the working class family with interest, but then can't really talk about it anymore and just leaves the scene. But he doesn't screw them over. He, he does what he promises, but only to them. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, the kind of upper class, uh, family, uh, sort of discover, I mean, to be fair, the, 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 this, the family is not portrayed in any negative light, particularly. The, the wife is, is loving and supportive. Um, she's obviously, a bit confused about what's going on at various points, but there's no indication that she would be anything other than at least understanding if he had come home and said, oh, I've been fired from my job, you know. So the the kind of the fantasy that needs to be upheld is is even more mysterious in some in some ways. It's not obvious that, that he would have lost all of his friends or his wife's love or anything like that. It's it's much more ambiguous, this film. It's 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 something to do with a certain kind of cultural pressure or a felt need, uh maybe even to disguise the true desire, which might be the driving, the desire to drive, or something like this, you know, that that to keep up the appearance is is kind of uh wildly important. But but important to whom, I think. That's why this film I think is quite clever, because it's not so obvious. Where the where the the need for the uh, appearance and the denial and the lies comes from, it's much more obscure than it could have been in a in a, a, a less clever and interesting film. I think um, there's something very opaque about the man himself. You know, we don't really understand so much about him. He he is quite um, impermeable, if you like, to. Um, to to any sort of demonstration of, of of emotion, even when he's caught by security guards or so on, he's often wearing a suit. The suit himself, the suit kind of protects him. It's it's all like, again in a kind of outward armor. Um, and I I think so in in some ways, um, kind of you know involuntarily or accidentally as a, as a quirk of history, this film has become also um an, a depiction of the type of work that no longer exists or will exist in the same way. Um, I was speaking to someone today about the city in London and no, virtually no one has gone back to their offices or people are working from home. Like this is, if if the people in those sorts of middle and upper middle class, laptop class, cognitariat jobs, that working from home is is become the dominant thing on all of the services like gyms and cafes that, that, that clustered around those people who worked are all collapsing these people are becoming bankrupt. These small businesses are are falling, are failing. Um, so, so yeah, I, it's it's a kind of very, you know, deliberately obscure meditation on a felt class pressure and an image of work that no longer, or at, or at least I think, is changing rapidly. Um, you know, we no longer have to work necessarily with people that we didn't choose to work with. <laughs> For better or worse, and we may have to spend more time on our own as as middle class para academic freelance whatnot, whatever the hell we are. <laughs> All right, so that means it's my turn. Time Out tells the story of Vincent, French consultant who loses his job, unable to face the situation. He pretends it never happened. 
to finance his lies, he becomes a scammer. Afraid that his family will discover the truth, he spends less time around them. They are more a source of pressure than support. Vincent seems more comfortable sleeping in his car than he is sleeping in his own home. As you might expect, the scams escalate, and the lie gets harder to maintain. Oddly, it made me think of phone scammers. On YouTube, there's this fellow who goes by the name Kit Boga. Kit Boga calls up phone scammers to mess with them. He keeps them on the phone for long periods of time, and sometimes he manages to discover which bank accounts are associated with the scammers. If you watch Kit Boga's videos, you learn a lot about these scammers and their circumstances. Most of the scammers are located in India. Many used to work for legitimate call centers. They learned English, and they learned how to deal with American customers, and that made them prime recruiting targets for the scammer outfits. The scam call centers don't pay that much better than the legitimate call centers. Most of the money goes to the people at the top, with only a little bit trickling down to the individual phone workers. But Indian call center workers are paid so little that scamming is still financially appealing, even with the risk. Like Vincent, the scammers often don't tell their families that they work for scam outfits. It's hard for family members to tell the difference between a legitimate call center and a scam center. In both cases, somebody goes to an office and comes home with money. Sometimes Kipboga confronts the scammers. He asks them what their families would think if they knew they made their money by taking advantage of elderly people. The scammers get defensive and start talking about all the money they bring in, often exaggerating the size of their take for effect. They tell themselves that their families don't care where the money comes from as long as it keeps coming. India and France are different in a lot of ways. In 2001, President Macron had not yet been elected, and he had not yet imposed flexible labor markets on France. Vincent was, in theory, better protected from the hazards of unemployment than most. But this isn't really about unemployment as experienced by workers. This is about professional class unemployment. For workers, unemployment sucks because you might lose everything, your house, your health, even the food on your plate. Only 10% of Indians can speak English. Indian phone scammers come from that top 10%. For educated professionals, unemployment sucks because it's embarrassing. It's shameful to fail to live up to family expectations. The drive to find a way to impress the family can be very strong, even if you have to do things that would shame them to impress them. (laughs) There are many shameful ways to make a living. Many would argue that consulting itself might be considered among them. Consultants are paid to improve efficiency and that often means they are paid to find people to fire. Both the scammer and the consultant mess up other people's lives for a buck. But in our global economic system, it is increasingly difficult to find a way to make money that isn't at least a little bit shameful. Very few jobs meaningfully improve the lives of others. Some jobs are about psychologically pestering people into buying things they don't need. Many jobs are about improving the efficiency of systems that we might be better off without. Where is the line between the person with a real job and the person with a fake job? It's a line we are constantly renegotiating. An advertiser who persuades you to buy things you don't need is nearly indistinguishable from an outright scammer who persuades you to give up money you don't need to give up. So much is funded by advertising, the media, sports, and through them, many universities as well. A lot of people have a financial interest in maintaining a sharp distinction between selling and scamming, And these same people are the people who dominate what can be on TV, what can be published. 
Over the past few months, there's been an explosion of sports gambling in America. A number of major celebrities, including Matt Damon, Larry David, and LeBron James, have done television ads for cryptocurrency outfits. Ads for cryptocurrencies and sports books are increasingly everywhere. It is not so hard for scamming to be legitimized. So many couples buy new homes and become enormously excited about swatches. What color should they paint this room? What kind of carpet should they put here? Should they choose oak or cherry wood? The house is an expression of who they are, they are told. But also the house is an investment, and they must modify it in a way which maintains or increases its value. They must find a way to do both of these things at once, and therefore they must express themselves in a way that's compatible with one day selling the house. To do this, they must cultivate within themselves appropriate bourgeois tastes so that there is no tension between self-expression and resale value. To do that, they must immerse themselves in the art of interior design. They must take classes and read magazines and click on things. They must be very careful about the swatches and choose the right ones. They must become the boring person to whom they will eventually sell their home. They must freely choose, as individuals, to submit to market incentives. Isn't that a bit of a scam? And yet an enormous amount of consumption is driven by this. The really affluent people feel they must redo their perfectly functional kitchens every couple of years just to keep them in style. An interior designer is just a consultant for your home. Once you need someone to tell you how to safely express yourself, what on earth is the point? Then there is the person who runs your social media account for you and tells you how to authentically express yourself in a way that grows your personal brand. They're an interior designer for your Twitter feed. There are a thousand ways to be a consultant these days, a thousand ways to be a scammer. We tell ourselves that we're not like those bad people who work for Bain Capital. Maybe it's because we're socially progressive or because we care about the planet. But all that separates the scammer from the professional is a thin veneer of culture. The scammers sell antivirus software because that's what used to work. The fact that you can see through it means it's time for them to move on to the thing you can't see through. The universities are the places where new language gets invented, where new scams begin. Everybody's Vincent. It's just that most of us are better at deceiving ourselves and our families. Who cares where the money comes from, as long as it keeps coming, and nobody hauls us off to prison over it? After all, we professionals are taught that morality is just another story. We should do whatever we want. But we should take jobs telling each other what we should want. And we should never feel that what we want is compromised by that. We are free to want whatever we want, provided we also work tirelessly to influence everyone else to want the things our employer wants. Oh, so many wants. So little time. I love it. So good. I love this interior. Yeah, you're, you're, free, to, you're free to interior design your home as long as it doesn't affect the, your resale price. Um, but it's true, you know, what you, know, you were saying about like, there is no desire of the big other. So who is this other this, who is ashamed of Vincent losing his job? The whole, the, the, the free, so obviously we live within capitalist unfreedom, you know, the market forces ensure that we don't really have a choice. But there is a freedom in the recognition that the unfreedom or the, the desire of the other isn't real. <laughs> so, you mm. know, you can libidinally disinvest. And I, you know, that lots of people point out that potentially the, the overcoming of capitalism <clears throat> Is not, you know, some, some, uh, utopic or, uh, uh, you know, cultural change or whatever, but this psychic libidinal dis disinvestment in the recognition that there is no other of the big other. And you don't have to, other than the fact that, yes, you do have to survive. But if there's enough of this sort of like understanding of the actual operation of desire, then that can maybe help in some way. But it's true. Like, but, but, but on the other side, the intense shame that people 
upper middle class people often feel. And, and as you know, humans caught up in the ideology promise, which is like all of us, um, not understanding that to, to, to desire well is to revolve around desire, never getting it, but will do anything with the belief of success. You know, and this happens, this happens at the scale of, you know, America killing millions in Iraq, you know, all this kind of stuff. We will do anything if we, if we believe. And then, you know, obviously this is the point, the Hegel's point, you know, the Owl of Minerva says flight at dusk. We, we cannot predict the future, but we sort of assure ourselves that the more we try, the more that we can, you know, solidify a future, a future that we think will transcendentally help us or, you know, assuage us in some way. But it's amazing what people do. So this idea of the Ponzi scheme is, is, a, is, a, is a hilarious one because it will logically inevitably fail. And I have come across recently Ponzi schemes of all kinds. Let's say um, progressive Ponzi schemes, Ponzi schemes of, um, and of course, the, the line is, you know, you point out between the scam and the, and the consultant, between the actual solid uh, enterprise and the Ponzi scheme is a very fine one. <laughs> but I have uh, come across a Ponzi scheme of um, of goodwill, you know, and it's it's the the promise of something, you know, and, and obviously one of the one of these cultural signifiers of a, a pertaining to a certain class is to be able to do things that are beyond the market system because you don't need it, you know, you're sort of above it in some way. And this is this is ever thus, right? And and now the sort of aboveness of the market system has to do with a sort of quote unquote aesthetic progressivism, which is to do with, oh, you can just sort of, you know, do things differently and it's somehow different. It's somehow not capitalism anymore. <laughs> it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing. But this is it's just this pull to be to be somebody or to to elevate yourself above abaseness that really is the truth of human existence in some way. And the suffering that people are willing to inflict on others disguised, you know, um, let's say uh, rubber stamped as, you know, culturally okay, is amazing. And we see this with, I, you know, the younger generation and generations younger than my generation in terms of, I think Freddie DeBoer wrote a book about this, but I didn't read it. So I'm not going to say that I am an expert on this at all because obviously Knox didn't read it. But um, I listen to a few podcasts, <laughs> you know, hashtag expert. But, um, but you know, the, the, the way in which young people's lives are being exploited of value through, um, you know, study, through competition, through, you know, training, through, um, through the expansion of the market into every dynamic of people's lives and private lives and the, the inability to let people just be. And, um, you know, a lot of, for a lot of bourgeois parents, their children become the designer handbag through their, um, you know, through their achievements, through their own careers, through um, what they are able to offer those parents eventually. So, yes, it is quite astonishing this, the extent um, to which people can make themselves and other people suffer. Yeah, this film reminded me of a, a, of an experience that I had when I was 19 or 20, when my mother lost her job. She was made redundant just from, from, from an office job. And she became extremely depressed about this. Like very, for, for a good few months, she was like very, very, very hurt that she had been made redundant. And she felt 
a very obvious like loss of sense of self and a loss of sense of, of, of worth. And I remember feeling obviously extremely sympathetic towards my mother and even worried about her at points to the extent that she was losing weight and she was very clearly unhappy. But I also remember feeling extraordinarily angry and almost shocked that the loss of a job, you know, could have such an effect on somebody. And I, I think this really inspired this, what became like this quite anti-work sentiment, which was, I wrote about a lot for, for many years. I was writing a lot about work and anti-work arguments and, you know, ways of thinking about living without this, you know, how, how would it be possible to live in a different way such that we didn't have to spend our time doing things which were, if not actively harmful, then actively useless, you know, spending time with people we wouldn't have chosen to spend time with and, and all of these sorts of things. And I, and it really just occurred to me in relation to this, this film and this memory of this period of my mother's life where she, you know, where I, it really, I was absolutely astonished that something to my mind, and maybe I, maybe I was arrogant and, you know, to think that, a mere office job could count for so much in my mother's concerns. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know in retrospect, was this a kind of, you know, the arrogance of someone who'd just gone to university or was at university thinking, well, it's just an office job. What does it matter? You know, why are you taking it so personally? This isn't about you. You're, you're still you. But from my mother's point of view, she wasn't her anymore, at least in that moment. You know, She identified her- with that role. Yes. And it took her like a year and a half to get out of it. She got another job eventually. She tried a couple of other things that she didn't like. And then eventually she found local work, working for like a cheese company. And, you know, she was okay again. But it was, there was something very, very shocking about that revelation or that realization that work could mean, a job could mean so much to somebody that it was them in some ways. I think if you spend a lot of time in a role, whether it's a job or it's a particular kind of family role, the more time you spend, the more you burrow down into that. And the harder it becomes to let that go. Our self-esteem gets so tied to the ways in which we present ourselves in public. And if you're suddenly deprived of one of those, it can take a while to find other things to replace it with. And I think a lot of people cope with their jobs by identifying with them. Mm. That's a way that you can do a job that is otherwise not something you would choose to do, uh, is by persuading yourself that you really are that thing. And so when it's taken from you, you also lose the cope and the justification for all of the time and effort and energy that you spent in that job. To move on from that job is to say that what you spent so much time and energy thinking about and worrying about was really not all that important. And in a way that invalidates so much of, of your previous life. If you treat it as an enormous loss, a kind of irredeemable loss, then all of the years that you spent doing it remain justified. Yeah, we do, you know, as human subjects require the recognition of the other. So we require, you know, obviously we have this idea that the big other is out there, some some greater force that sort of tells us what to do, that there is some some place beyond antagonism where there is a solution and that solution is where we have to get to. And if we are well behaved, we're rewarded and all this kind of stuff. But we do require the recognition of other people, other people being lacking like ourselves, thinking, perceiving beings because they lack. 
and we can exist in the eyes of other people. And when, yeah, we're in a society which is a market system, um, you know, it's, 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 it's so orientated around, around work, our roles are really tied, tied to that. And, you know, the, our, our very existence is so tied up. Our, our existence is in our subjective reality in the eyes of other people is, is tied up, tied up in that, um, to a really large extent. And it, it can be, it can be sub, like very painful. It can be very like subjectively painful to cease to, to feel as if you cease to exist in the eyes of the other. Um, mm. and, I think a lot of suffering happens, especially I think in this era of greater and greater hyper competitivism in, say, the academic arena and and various things. We were talking a little bit um, over text about the different the ways that university in America and the UK are different, and one of the ways is you know sports that you can um, manage to have your your university career pay for by being very good at sports. So this this hyper competitivization of I don't think that's the word of 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 the young. When basically everything you you don't exist in the eyes of the other outside of some formalized recognition, and maybe that's you know within the workplace some kind of role, but in your youth, um, some kind of accreditation or um, systematized um, judgment upon you. And I think it can be very subjectively paint things that things that should be you know a bonus and and an achievement and something you know really special in life become a um a marker of your very mattering in the world and i think it can be very very painful when they, when those things go away or when um you don't have them when when the possibility of them exists um so i i really feel for young people i really do in this hyper competitive unfair system Yeah, I remember a parent when I was in school, a parent to one of my classmates said to uh, her son, uh, you know, there are two ways to get to college. Either you can get there on an academic scholarship or a sports scholarship, and you're not smart enough to get an academic scholarship, so you're going to play sports. I remember overhearing that. <laughs> I have to say, the thing is, that this is where like sports were one of the most, the best things I've ever done in my life, was committing myself to pursuing things in sport. And I, don't regret the time I spent doing sport in it for a second. I absolutely love it. I think it had, it was like one of the most wonderful things I've ever done in my life. But yeah, turning it into this um, life or death. And, and, and in a sense, in this, you know, bourgeois culture where going to university is a matter of life or death. And as you say, yeah, if you don't, obviously the hilarious thing is, well, you're just imprisoning yourself in in debt. And those who go to university, obviously the the, the the lake of possibility is getting sucked up gradually and gradually and gradually, and this is basically a desert now. So you're probably better in many ways, in some circumstances, not going to university and, and you know, um, doing some other kind of practical job often. Um, but yeah, there's a, it's in, in, in this, in this, as you say, the, the reality, the fear, the constant fear, this ideological fear, which is imposed by nobody, but but is something that we collectively potentially feel is that as a working class person or somebody who hasn't gone to university, you could be out on the street in any second. Of course, ironically, so could everybody else. Um, but the and it is it that intense fear that um, that leads to a scapegoating and an othering and a disgust, uh, a cultural disgust, which leads to 
um, a very sad denial of the political possibility in listening to the voices of those people who have a lot to say. And I think they have a lot to say right now, obviously. I think, yeah, I mean, this this question of like the the left's relationship to the working class. I mean, as we've seen, you know, the left isn't the working class. The left is now increasingly just a, a kind of ideological state apparatus that just kind of defends what the state is doing and, and adds to it some kind of hatred for people who actually do any work. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I think we've seen this in in Brexit in the UK where, where the people voted the wrong way, you know, according to the left liberal class. Uh, we saw it in the, in the pandemic, in the kind of condemnation of people who didn't think that necessarily that lockdowns were the right thing to do, not least because they had to carry on working um, and, you know, wanted to refuse the vaccines. We see it with the Canadian truckers and this kind of, you know, almost like genocidal rage on the part of some people against people who are, you know, running, who are working on the supply chain and the supply lines and you know the the absolute kind of abhorrence for the the like let's say the wrong kind of working class person you know it's 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 like who who else do you think does these jobs and actually does things that make a material difference and you know there isn't anyone else like that this is it like this is who a, a, a nation is or a country is it's like you know, and you might disagree with them and they might have diff- different feelings and views to you. It's, it's, I don't know. I just find it like incomprehensible, this kind no, of... I have to say, we are sort of slipping towards some kind of like Greco-Roman citizens <laughs> and slaves, you know, like as in we, we get to have an, a democratic opinion, us who, who think in the correct way. But again, I think this is a lot to do with, you know, we talked about the woke culture being puritanical and sort of a religious element and a, a purifying a sort of um, denial of the baseness of one's one's own, you know, material reality as a human subject, but decorating, you know, and, and performing certain sort of like um, purifying rituals of, of, of cultural absolution. But um, what was I going to say before that? Damn, I've lost my lost my train of thought. But yeah, no, but th- th- this very much is this sort of, I think it, it comes a lot to do with a, f- a fear. I think there is an abject fear that people who are being proletarianized feel towards those people who have already who are already in that state. And I think it is to do with a sort of subtle intuition that there is an encroachment of that reality. I think part of what is going on is, of course, the institutional decline of Marxism in the West uh, as the Cold War came to an end. And as a new generation of academics came up in the 80s and 90s, young people who wanted to carve out a space for themselves felt that the materialist, realist, Marxist frames of analysis, everything that one could say had already been said, and it wasn't easy to carve out a space, and so invented a a series of new discussions that are primarily cultural in character and focus on groups and recognition and are not so interested in the actual Reality. economic workings of society, <laughs> distributions of power. But this and, is, but, but this, it's, is it, this is the Ponzi scheme thing. It's so what happens scheme, is, yeah. Yeah. Is, is because there is kind of, you can't really break through and you can't be someone who has a bold new original idea if you follow in a path that has already you know, uh, but, borne but fruit. Histori- you have his, to create yeah. new words 
And then sure. you guys and all of your friends hop on those new terms and you tell each other and you tell everybody who will listen that the terms have wonderful explanatory power and are very, very interesting. And before you know it, you have a whole uh, elite discussion which revolves around these terms that have nothing to do with how things actually work. Sure. But like, you know, 10 years ago, the, the historical materialist left, like the, the left that was actually think trying to think about, you know, economics and, and supply chains and so on. Like, you know, there's stuff about supply chains in Frederick Jameson. I dug it out the other day to put it on <coughs> Facebook just to like, you know, remind everyone that the left did used to have a p positions on this. And the ultra left definitely did. Like if you read Takoon, they talked all the time about blocking supply chains and how and this was how you were going to stop the system. It was all about these forms of sabotage and these forms of strike and these literally cutting off the, you know, the circulation of goods. I mean, these right. were real proposals on the left, but the moment yeah. it actually happens, IRL, they're nowhere to be seen. Like no one is, no. they're not celebrating well, the Canadian truckers. Part of it Far is that there's it. been this, this enormous decline in the institutional, in the institutional presence of, of the Marxists. So, for one, you know, for quite a while, we, when we talk about Marxists, we're increasingly talking about continental theorists in France, in Italy. We're not talking about the Anglosphere because they're almost completely gone from the Anglosphere. Certainly, they're totally gone from the United States, and there aren't very many of them left in the UK. So increasingly, we're talking about continental theorists whose work, if it makes it at all into the Anglosphere, is translated and then butchered by the people who want to take off little bits and pieces of it and pretend they've engaged with it. So we have that problem going on. Uh, the other thing that's that's going on is that as the Marxists are pushed out, this creates a vacuum in radical discourse, which is filled by left liberal anarchists who make reference to continental theorists, make reference to Marx, but at the end of the day are committed principally to a set of cultural stances over and above any kind of economic analysis. And for them, making reference to economic stuff is a, is a kind of aesthetic advantage, a way of justifying themselves as radical, but isn't ultimately what matters to them, isn't ultimately why they're in politics. And so when push comes to shove, all of that is jettisoned whenever it conflicts with uh, their cultural value position. So this makes it very easy to flip these people against a movement like, say, the trucker movement. If you attach the trucker movement to a set of right-wing cultural aesthetic signifiers, then the movement becomes verboten. You can't possibly mm -hmm. engage with it. So when these left anarchists are refusing to engage with the truckers because the truckers are verboten, of course, that means that the truckers, since there is no other left to be involved with, are pushed to the right by the fact that the left is treating them as verboten. And so then that makes the truckers into a culturally right-wing movement. But even and at level, it becomes yeah. self-fulfilling. I, I mean, I don't, I don't even think it, it, there is that, that, even that many right-wing aspects to the trucker movement in the first no, place. No, you, have, but like, you think, have like one or two ha people but, happen. Yeah, but it, yeah. it doesn't even matter. Doesn't, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, Barry Weiss did a nice piece where she interviewed actual people in the convoy, right, and spoke to them and asked them why they were there. And there were lots of different reasons. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of them make sense and some of them are less convincing and whatever. But they're not – nobody – it's, it's you know, not obviously a unified political movement. And I think, you know, one of the, the absolutely insane things about this is, is also Trudeau's response. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, he's literally saying we're going to freeze your bank accounts. I mean, even absolutely. a left liberal – like a liberal – person who wants to defend something like, uh, I don't know, like people's right to protest without losing their income or having their bank accounts frozen should be exactly. up in arms about uh, this. His this, whole is way of dealing. this is a liberal yeah. 
Trudeau's way of dealing with it was to say that it's fascist. And then mm-hmm. once you've said that it's fascist, if you are going to maintain that position, you have to act like it genuinely is. And so that has trapped him into a series of escalating moves, yeah. which are just making the whole situation worse. If he and would just a, back off a- this 14 day quarantine, that's the major demand of the movement. People would go home, but he can't back off of that. It, it reminds me of the South Park episode Pajama Day that just came out where the principal having told the kids they can't wear their pajamas on pajama day because they've misbehaved, uh, can't back off from having taken this position because he'll look weak. Uh, And even though it continues to escalate, more and more people are angry with him for having stopped the kids from wearing their pajamas. He can't back down because if he backs down, it's just too embarrassing. And similarly here, Trudeau has made such a thing out of being the guy who stops the virus. And he has made such a thing out of the fact that these truckers are fascists, that if he makes any concessions to them, then he's making concessions to fascists, according to his own reasoning. And therefore, he's an incredibly pathetic figure. So he now has nothing he can do. Absolutely is. But this is careerism over politics. Politics is the tarrying of contradictions, the tarrying of different groups to come to a better solution. And the thing is, that is quite funny. So first of all, yes, of course, you have, there's the trump card of fascism. As soon as that is, it's a terrible, um, you know, uh, thing fairly recently in human history that, um, but, but of course, the thing that creates fascism is precisely this cultural, um, denial of the real workings of capitalism that makes people so abjectly poor and frustrated because of the continued denial that this leads people to then eventually become right. So, so obviously this adopting of a critique of something that's not really in existence right now, except for let's say a few randos that obviously, you know, suddenly you can, you can have examples of, you know, clearly people of all kinds of races being involved, clearly expressing all kinds of different opinions, clearly the leaders of this movement saying that they, you know, don't stand for whatever the thing that Trudeau's picked up on. But the other thing is, is that it's as if waiting for this, this pure example, like it's, it's forget a denial of what politics actually is, which is a rising up often, or, or let's say a, a left wing movement. It's a rising up of those who cannot bear the contradiction any longer, who can't take it anymore. And they don't have to be, you know, oh, have they read this book? You know, obviously for me, I'm, I, and I think many people are sort of like, oh, I'd rather they not talk about, you know, c- coronavirus, but rather, you know, actual more, um, material economic questions, but that's not that. That's not to say that this isn't also a left wing movement. You know, it's not like they have to all have the same opinion. They have to all have gone to university. They have to all speak in a certain way. They don't even have to be unified. You know, this I, is I, an, a symptom. This is an ex- that we that needs to be analysed and heard. On the point about the careerism of Trudeau, that careerism is then used to affect. Uh, to, to get all of the intellectual left, because the intellectual left, because it there isn't a whole lot of it, uh, once it becomes the dominant narrative that the truckers are fascists, then if you defend them, then you're defending fascists, or at least you appear to be defending fascists, and then you have to try to explain the fact that you're doing this to the people who think that you're defending fascists. And I've seen a number of memes where, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, somebody pointing a gun at the Nazis, and then there's the weird left-wingers who think it's a workers' movement trying to take the bullet. You, know, you end up having to do a lot of explaining, and the implication over and over is you're only defending the truckers because maybe you're right-wing, or maybe you're racist, or but maybe you're a this, fascist, or what have this you. This move is over. Like This is such a pathetic move. It's like everyone, you know, who hasn't been called a fascist <laughs> at this point a million but, times? But, but, the, 
The, the so trouble is that a lot of the left-wing intellectuals have an investment in trying to maintain a position within the university system because they have this notion that the left is going to empower itself culturally by positioning itself in influential spots within cultural institutions, within the universities. Mm-hmm. The trouble is that fight's already been lost. Mm-hmm. The, the Marxists mm-hmm. have already been pushed out of those institutions in favor of, of left liberals. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to stay in these institutional roles, and therefore they're deferring to a narrative which is increasingly dominated by a, a liberal interpretation of this event. But, but this is precisely the, the failure of totalitarian thinking, but, which is non-dialectic. So the non-dialectical nature of Trudeau's ridiculous ideology is precisely promoting fascism. He is. He, he, he desires the fascistic enemy. It's like he wants a resurgence of fascism. He is there literally... If anybody's responsible of creating fascism, he is on the side of the fascists, precisely because he doesn't understand the dialectical nature of the political and what actually fascism is or might be in its new form in the future. And I think that there is a genuine risk of that. The other thing is, again, the when Jordan Peterson calls himself a psychoanalyst, and it's like, well, he can't even think dialectically, so no. But is that is that genuinely... It's not cultural Marxism, whatever the fuck that is. It's generally the fact that there is no Marxism within the institution. That's literally the problem. So it's like complete arse over tit. So it is so funny that, you know, and I just think it's funny. You see all these pictures of Trudeau who, well, according to his own standards, is definitely racist, you know, with his, <laughs> with his face paint and everything like that. But like he's, he genuine, genuinely is on the, he's, he's a totally right wing, totally right wing. Like if you have any understanding of how what philosophically the left and the right are he's certainly um, behaving like a psychopath i mean it's like yeah not not backing down and not admitting that you're wrong or at least saying we can talk about it i mean it's like it's it's almost like this this i don't know it's a very banal level it's like the people who are truckers are people right yeah they are canadian citizens they are like (laughs) literally the people that you are supposed to represent and are part of your country and are like you in in many many ways like they're not an enemy, like, no, totally. you know, by definition, they, they are they're, they're an enemy to the smooth running <laughs> of the utopic liberal fantasy of we're all progressing towards a future, get on board, not understanding that it's de- the denial of antagonism that generates a greater return of the repressed in the present. Hello, people. But also, like, the funny thing is with this cognitarian we're talking about, that the, the discourse generation and hilariously so much free labor, including by us as we're doing this podcast, just saying, you know, that, that there's so much free labor being done and these people are fucking mugs, you know, and it's like if they're talking about politics, the real revolutionary act is not waiting for some future moment where we all think in the right way and we've all learned to lesson and it's all going to suddenly miraculously arrange itself. It's refusing to be to do work that you're not paid for. But of course, the call of the bourgeois promise of some spectacular different career that isn't shopkeeping, that isn't working in the supermarket, gets people to ge- like generate so much value in their free labor, in their free cultural labor. And it's like, so these people, I just find it hilarious calling themselves left wing or whatever, but it's like, what looks like a revolution is is not tidy, is not neat, is not predictable. It's literally a big a big no it's a big well no. if it's if it's a proletarian or lumpen proletarian revolution but the left as it currently exists doesn't have any kind of base in the working class mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so has become mainly a discursive project of trying to capture elite institutions a kind of marcuse influenced discursive project and 
that project has categorically failed at this point. All the the left in the universities is uh, a left liberal thing. It's not a Marxist thing. And and so what we have is very few Marxists left, and the ones who are left, many of them still delusionally thinking that they can be part of some kind of Marcuse-type project that has, by this point, completely exhausted itself. So I think that's why we have so few people who are willing to come out. Now, because there are so few people who are willing to come out and, and give any kind of defense to these truckers, the truckers are on an island uh, intellectually because they have no allies in the left-wing part of the professional class. They have no allies in the left-wing intelligentsia. And so that leaves them vulnerable to uh, influence from elites who don't come from that background and come from other backgrounds. And this is the sense in which I'm saying what Trudeau is doing brings about Mm -hmm. what the slander that he, his slander becomes true because what he says alienates the movement from the people who could help it be left-wing and yeah. help something left-wing be constructed off of it. But I think, I mean, in, like left-wing intellectuals are not supposed to be some kind of floating class that come along and tell people what, what to think anyway, even if they have a kind of correct analysis. I mean, you know, surely it's the workers who experience what it is to work. I mean, on some very basic level, like they're doing the work. They literally know what material reality is. They have a direct relationship to it. You know, they're not like uh, th- this is an open question whether the left wing intellectual can do anything useful. But right, if the left wing exactly. intellectual is good for anything, <laughs> it's got to be allying to workers when workers are upset and workers well, are making noise and helping mm-hmm. workers to organize. And if the left wing intellectual isn't good for that, what on earth is the left wing intellectual for? And in what mm-hmm. sense is the left wing intellectual left wing? The thing that I do worry about is the is the totalization of conservatism. And I have many conservative friends and just as I have many left wing and left liberal friends or whatever. But, you know, for instance, the, the fact that Barry Weiss is the one that is um, interviewing these people. You yeah. know, so so it is the conservatives that are that are. Um, so so I, I thought this was, you know, what I was saying, I think, in the 2019 general election in the UK is that the conservatives subjectively respect the workers but objectively fuck them and the you know the the upper middle class labor party subjectively disrespects the working class and objectively disrespects them but maybe slightly better slightly less objectively disrespects them than the conservatives but the jury's fucking out at this point you know um, but but um so i don't think subjective respect is enough and i don't I have to say, you know, whilst I I respect people for whatever views, and this is not to say that you shouldn't be a conservative or any, anything like that, I do worry that there is an elision um, between there. There is a, a, a totalization and a misunderstanding of what the left is and should be, um, because of the abject failure of the left liberal um, sort of segment and the domination of the conservatives of this. And I don't think that conservatism is the right direction. Well, when you get like a a movement that's built on resentment, a kind of spontaneous resentment driven worker movement, that can take a lot of different forms. It's initially just frustration and anger and rage and resentment. And you can channel that in lots of different ways politically. And so there's an opportunity for political actors to use that energy in different ways to accomplish different things. And when the political actors who ostensibly care about workers refuse to use that energy to help the workers, 
then that energy is left to others who don't care or who may have mm -hmm. uh, self-interested motivations. And I think that's the, the terribly sad thing about all of this Trudeau before it was even really determined who would be able to wield this movement, define the movement as right wing and in doing that, assigned it to the right such that no one else would interact with it. And that takes this, this energy and it makes it very hard for anybody to constructively put it to use. And I think that's a great shame. Uh, anyway, we are at about an hour. So I, I do want to say briefly, we have decided that we're going to have to cut production a little bit. Uh, we're going to do uh, a mainline episode that's available to everybody fortnightly. And we're also going to do a patron episode fortnightly. So it's going to be mainline episode one week, patron episode the next week, then mainline, then patron. The reason we're doing this is that Helen has a really cool project that I'm not going to discuss, but it's really, really cool. <laughs> I think it's awesome, but it means that she's going to be very busy. And so we have to do this. Now, you'll still be able to hear us every week, but you have to be one of our patrons to hear us every week. I'm sorry. I know that people like the current level of output, but Helen's project, it's really cool. And it really just, just does Hopefully take the up too much time. sacrifice is worth it. And yeah. I know we also maybe, maybe, um, you know, you, the, 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 the need, the, the want will make us more desirable. <laughs> but it will I generate more lack. Yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Horrible lack yeah. seeping, <laughs> seeping out. <laughs> so to those who may be disappointed by that announcement, I am truly, truly sorry. But it is necessary for Helen's sake and for the sake of Helen's project. And Helen's project is worth making a sacrifice for. It is going to be, I think, a really excellent thing. So thank you guys so much for listening. We are going to go and record another uh, B-side episode for the patrons right now. So uh, we're going to hop on and do that. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.